Hebrews 1 verse 1, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, in the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son." And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions." And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. For it was not through angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels, You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone." For it is fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. So far, the reading of God's Word. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 45, stanzas 1 through 3. Let's now turn to our catechism reading. 
which comes this afternoon from Lord's Day 13 of the Heidelberg Catechism, a summary of the Christian faith and the confession of this Christian church. We turn to Lord's Day 13 then, which presents us with the question concerning the Lord Jesus, why is he called God's only begotten Son, since we also are children of God? Because Christ alone is the eternal, natural Son of God. We, however, are children of God by adoption through grace for Christ's sake. Why do you call him our Lord? Because he has ransomed us, body and soul, from all our sins, not with silver or gold, but with his precious blood, and has freed us from all the power of the devil to make us his own possession. So far the reading of the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, over the last weeks, as we've been working our way through the Apostles' Creed, we've been giving special attention to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus, particularly the identity of the Lord Jesus, the names that we call Him and the meaning of those names. We spent four weeks uh, just on the meaning of the name Christ, a a title that is loaded with, with meaning. Uh, And now we want to spend one last week looking at one more extremely important title, also loaded with meaning, and that is the title, The Son of God. What does it mean that we call Jesus the Son of God? Now we want to think about what that title means, and then we want to spend some time also thinking about why uh, that title matters, why that's something we should continue to, to hold on to. Now, the title, the the Son of God, is used for the Lord Jesus all over the New Testament. It's not uh, just in one or two uh, occasional places. You find it throughout all of the Gospels, throughout the letters of Paul, the letters of Peter, and other uh, parts of the New Testament. Uh, It's also one of the most controversial titles. Uh, Muslims, in particular, consider this title to be blasphemous in the highest degree. The Quran states in several places uh, that God does not have a son, and it is blasphemy to say that God has a son. Uh, There are also a number of heretical uh, groups, groups that have splintered off of Christianity, that either reject this title or otherwise reinterpret it, because it's there in the Bible, uh, reinterpret it to make it something less than what it is. Uh, so for the, for the early church, this was a very important confession, a, a fundamental confession. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. That's what we want to think then about this afternoon. Uh, what does that title mean? We probably want to start by looking at the phrase, only begotten. Uh, this translation is, is based on the King James translation of the Bible where it takes a, a Greek, a single Greek word, monogenes uh, in the Greek, um, that originally meant something along the lines of one and only, very unique. Uh, it's most often used to refer to an only child. Uh, you find a similar phrase in, in the Latin language, and that shows up in the Nicene Creed as well, uh, where it calls Jesus the only begotten Son of God. Uh, the, the original words meant something like 
one and only or unique, and they would typically refer to an only child. Uh, hence the translation, only begotten. That, that makes sense. Uh, to beget, of course, means to father, to father a child. Uh, like you find, for example, in the genealogies, um, Adam begot Seth, Seth begot Kenoth, uh, and, and so forth. Uh, so when we say Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, uh, what we're simply saying is he is the one and only Son of God, the, the unique Son of God. Uh, the phrase only begotten does have some downsides uh, in that it puts an emphasis on this process of begetting uh, in, in the English, which is, which is unfortunate because the Greek and, and even the Latin did not have that, that emphasis on, on the process. Uh, and it can sometimes cause people to wonder, what does it mean that, that God the Father begat uh, Jesus? Uh, or how, in what way did he father him? And that's, that's really not the point. The point is to say that Jesus is the one and only, the unique Son of God. Uh, that's why the ESV and, and most modern translations will simply say the only Son of God or the one and only Son of God. Uh, likewise, the Apostles' Creed, even in the Latin, uh, uses the phrase unicum, which simply means only, the only Son of God. And that's what this confession is really all about. It's saying Jesus is the only Son of God. So then, we might ask, what does this mean, that Jesus is the only Son of God? Uh, here's where I have to make a confession. I don't know. I don't know what it means that Jesus is the only Son of God. At least, I don't know the fullness of what that means, because I don't know, and neither do you, know the inner being of God. Uh, what exactly is that relationship between the Father and Son within the person of God? Uh, none of us know. We are creatures. He is God. We are not. At the same time, God does tell us these things about Himself. He uses, He chooses this phrase, Son of God, to teach us things. And so clearly these things do matter, and we do want to ask, what are we to learn from Scripture's use of this title? Uh, he, he, we're not prying into, into forbidden mysteries to ask, what does this language mean? Uh, so that's what we want to do first. We want to work through Scripture and think through what does the language of son, sonship, mean? What does that communicate that God would use that language and we also want to think about what, perhaps, does it not mean? What might it not imply? Uh, and we want to recognize here, the title Son of God is obviously using human language to speak of a divine reality. Uh, it's using the human, human concept of sonship to refer to something that exists in the being of God. Uh, it does not refer to sonship in the typical human sense. Jesus was not born to the Father via procreation the way that human sons are born. God does not have a wife. Uh, this is where, oftentimes, surprisingly, uh, this is where Muslims often get hung up because they assume that by speaking of Jesus as the Son of God, uh, that we are implying that God had some sort of sexual relationship with, with Mary, which is not what Scripture teaches. In fact, many Muslims, uh, if you ask them what Christians believe about the Trinity, they will say well, it's the Father, the Son, and the Virgin Mary. 
uh, assuming that's what, what the Trinity is. Uh, so this is often a point of confusion where, where very simple clarification can help. We're not saying that God had a son the way human fathers had sons. It's an analogy. It's there to teach us something of God. And so, working from that point, we may uh, learn some things, deduce some things from this language of sonship. For example, in the first place, the language of sonship communicates distinction, distinction between persons. There is a father and a son. They are distinct persons. Uh, Human sons, likewise, are distinct from their fathers. Uh, So when the Bible speaks of Jesus as the Son of God, uh, there is an implied distinction between Father and Son. He is His own person. Uh, And we see this even in the way that the Father and the Son relate to one another. Uh, Jesus speaks to the Father. Uh, The Father speaks in return to the Son. Jesus prays to the Father. Jesus loves the Father. Uh, these are not just two uh, facets of one person uh, because the facets don't have a relationship. Dynamics don't have a relationship with each other. People do. Uh, persons do. Uh, and, and we see then the Father and Son are distinct persons. At the same time, here's where the language might throw us off, unlike human fathers and sons, it is not a distinction of being. My father, my human father, is a distinct being from me. Uh, But that is not the case within God. For Jesus says, uh, for example, John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. There's a unity of being and a distinction of persons. Uh, There's one and only one God, not two, not three gods, yet there are three persons. Uh, So the language of sonship communicates distinction, The language of sonship also communicates something of origin. Uh, uh, The the son has his origin in the father. Just as human sons have their origin in their fathers, so God the son has his origin uh, in God the father. Uh, This is what the confessions speak of when they talk about the son being begotten. It means he comes from the father. Now again, we need to be careful. The analogy is not perfect. The analogy of human sonship, uh, because with origin, we usually also assume beginning. Uh, I have a beginning that comes from my human father. Jesus does not have a beginning. He has his origin in the father, but it's from eternity itself, from outside of time itself. Uh, Perhaps the the language that's used in Hebrews 1 uh, may be the most helpful to to be able to understand this. Uh, Hebrews 1 is one of those those passages in Scripture that speaks most forcefully about the the divinity of of Christ, that He is God. Uh, And in Hebrews 1 verse 3, the author says there, He is the, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Uh, both of those two uh, analogies or, or phrases communicate something of origin. Radiance is, is an imagery that's taken from light, uh, that light has an origin. Uh, or imprint has an, uh, an origin from the original. Uh, so Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Well, what does that mean? It means that he has his origin in God, but constantly, eternally, emanates out of God. He is uh, eternal as the Father is 
eternal. Uh, A third thing, it's going to get easier from here. Uh, A third thing we may learn from the language of sonship is there's also a, a likeness, a similarity between fathers and sons. Uh, Just as human sons bear the image or likeness of their father, uh, so God the Son bears the perfect likeness of His Father. Again, as our text says in Hebrews, uh, He is the exact imprint of His nature. He he resembles His Father. Uh, A fourth thing uh, we may observe from this this language is... uh, that there is also between fathers and sons something of a shared nature. A shared nature. Uh, This is true in in human sonship. A human son consists of the same nature as his father. They are both human beings. Uh, uh, Now now here, we want to be careful not to to over-philosophize. We can't speak of the nature or essence of God like it's some substance you could measure in a a laboratory. Uh, And yet we can speak of a divine nature because God himself uses those very terms. Again, Hebrews 1 verse 3, he is the exact imprint of his nature. Uh, Or in in Romans 1, Paul says that the divine nature is revealed in the things that God has has made. Uh, Or Colossians 1, uh, Paul speaks of Jesus as the one in whom the fullness of deity, that is the divine nature, dwells. And, And perhaps this is even the most important thing that is communicated with this language of sonship. Uh, Namely, that God the Son shares in the same nature as His Father. Uh, He is God just as His Father is God. Uh, God the Son is God in every way that God the Father also is. Uh, Though distinct in persons, they are one being sharing the one divine nature. Now again, how how all this works, that we are not privy to understand. Uh, That is beyond our limits. We are creatures. We are not God. There are these things that are beyond our ability as creatures to comprehend. But we should recognize there are also things that are taught clearly and unambiguously by God's Word, and He gives it to us for our instruction that we might know Him better and serve Him more fully. Uh, So the question becomes, what do we then do as creatures with limitations who receive uh, this Word from God? Uh, We may, as some groups have done, as some heretical Christian groups have done, uh, we may say, well, we're not going to believe what we cannot understand. Instead, we'll synthesize it in a way we can understand it and downplay those passages that, that become problems for us. Well, that ought not to be our approach. We ought rather, as creatures, believe what God teaches, confess what God teaches, even if we don't fully comprehend what God teaches about Himself. Nor should we be surprised that there are things about God that surpass our understanding. You should expect that of, of your God. Uh, so that was the first question. What does this language of sonship mean? And, and we, we saw it, it, re- it refers to distinction, origin, likeness, and, and nature. At least those four principles. Uh, the second question that we asked at the beginning of this sermon was, why does it matter? 
Why does, why does it matter to know all this about God the Son? Uh, if the last uh, five minutes sort of felt like swimming through the deep end, uh, you might be asking yourself this, why does this matter that we know all this? Why does God reveal this about himself? Well, our text in Hebrews 1 and 2 uh, is devoted to driving home this very point, that Jesus is the Son of God. And the text itself gives at least three reasons why this matters so much. Uh, First of all, right in the first couple verses of Hebrews 1, uh, we learn that we need to know that Jesus is the Son of God so that we would pay attention to Him when He speaks. Uh, So the the book of Hebrews opens with these words, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He created the world. Why does He say that? So that you would listen to the Son. If you would listen to God's prophets long ago, how much more would you not listen to God Himself, to the Son of God? Uh, So we need to know that Jesus is the Son of God so that we would listen to Him. Uh, He's not one of uh, many different ways to God. He is God Himself having come to our world to speak to us, and we better sit up and listen. Uh, The Gospel of John emphasizes the same thing as well. For example, in John 1 verse 14, uh, he says, "...the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory..." Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Why does he say that? So you would pay attention to his glory. That's glory worth seeing. Uh, Jesus is, is much more than just a prophet come from God. He is God himself come to this world. Uh, the point is made again, actually, in, in our text in Hebrews, in chapter 2. Verse 1. So all of chapter 1 is devoted to driving home this point. Jesus is God. He's divine. And then chapter 2 begins with the word, therefore. Uh, Meaning he's he's about to tell us what follows, what implications follow from what he's just proven. Uh, And he says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. If Jesus is the Son of God, we must listen to Him even more closely than we would ever listen to a prophet. Even more closely, he implies, than we would listen to an angel. Uh, If it's God who's speaking, we must listen. Uh, So that's our first reason why it matters to know that Jesus is the Son of God. Because uh, that should spur us on to listen to Him. Uh, a second reason is, is given in chapters, chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. And there it speaks of, of the world being subjected to the Son. Uh, I'll summarize it this way. Uh, we need to know that Jesus is God because the whole world is going to be subjected to Him. Uh, he's not just a servant acting on behalf of God. He is the one to whom all the nations one day shall bow. Uh, The Old Old Testament scriptures taught from ancient times that all the nations would one day worship God. Uh, And uh, for for example, Hebrews 2 verse 14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Well, the point this chapter is making is all of those verses, 
that speak of the earth coming to worship God and all the nations coming to know Him, all of those verses find their fulfillment in the Son of God, in Jesus Christ. You should worship Him knowing that one day all the nations will also worship Him. Uh, One day, Christ's glory will be the glory that fills the whole earth. Uh, That too is a good reason to take Him seriously now. Uh, He's not just a prophet. He's not just a king. He's not just a priest. He is God Himself whom all the nations will one day worship. There's one more reason given in our text. This is in verse 10 uh, of chapter 2. And then... I think. Uh, Yeah, in in verse 10 of of chapter 2. And then it's worked out in the rest of chapter 2, which we didn't read. Uh, And and it's this simple reason that Jesus' identity as the Son of God also means something for your identity as one who belongs to Him. Uh, There's implications for you as well. And that is that you too will be through Him sons and daughters of God. Now, yes, not exactly in the same sense, in the eternal, natural sense uh, that Jesus is. Uh, But nonetheless, you shall participate as those who belong to Him in the same relationship of love that He the Son has shared with the Father from eternity. Uh, Hebrews 10, or 2, verse, verse 10. It was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons, notice that, the plural, in bringing many sons to glory, should make their founder, the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Uh, why does it matter to know that Jesus is the Son of God? Because it says something about you as one who belongs to Him. Uh, That you too, by belonging to Him, are made into sons and daughters of God. You are brought into, adopted into, the most loving, perfect relationship that has ever existed. In fact, this was the Lord Jesus' prayer in in John 17, that that very intimate prayer between the Father and the Son uh, is perhaps the the single text in Scripture that most vividly and intimately portrays uh, that relationship between the Father and the Son. Um, And Jesus prays prays in that prayer, uh, the, the thrust of that prayer is that those who belong to Him, those whom the Father has given Him, might know the Father's love just as well as He Himself has known the Father's love from eternity. Uh, that the Father would share that same affection for all of those who belong to the Son. Uh, So it matters to know that Jesus is the Son of God because that means that in Him, we who belong to Him are also sons and daughters of God. You see it again in verse 11 of our text. Uh, He says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Uh, Jesus calls you Not only his child, there are texts he does that, not only his servants, not only his friends, but also his brothers, his brothers and sisters. Uh, Jesus is not ashamed to see you eye to eye at the same level as under the, the fatherhood of his own father. He calls you his brothers. 
so, so there's a third reason why it matters then that we, we would know that Jesus is more than just a prophet, more than an angel, but indeed the very Son of God. Now let me close with just one last reason that uh, once you think of it is, is quite striking and quite obvious, and that is the reason that uh, the message of Scripture from the beginning to the end is salvation belongs, you can say it yourself in your own heads, salvation belongs to God alone. That's the story of Scripture. So did salvation come from man or did salvation come from God? Uh, that's the song of the angels in, in Revelation 7. It's the song of the angels again in Revelation 19. And it's one of the greatest themes of Scripture. Salvation belongs to God. Uh, Psalm 37, verse 39. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. Or Psalm 62, verse 7. On God rests my salvation and my glory. He is my mighty rock and my refuge. Or Isaiah 43, uh, God himself says, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. Isaiah 45, there's no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Jeremiah 3, uh, truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. One more, Hosea 13, verse 4, I am the Lord your God from... I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. Or lastly, Jonah 2 verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's the oldest message of Scripture. Salvation belongs to God, and if it isn't God who saves us, we shall not be saved. Uh, this, too, is a reason to hold to the conviction that Jesus is the Son of God. If He's not God, He will not be the Savior who saves us. Uh, that's why the Catechism also mentions that the only mediator who could ever deliver us would have to be not just true and righteous man, but also true God, because we need the power of His divine nature for Him to bear in His human nature the wrath of God. The salvation we need is too great to be accomplished by a mere man. Uh, none but God could do it. Uh, so though we certainly cannot fully understand what this, this phrase means, that Jesus is the Son of God, it is still human language. It, we have our limitations. Yet it is language that God Himself uses that we would learn from it to come to know His Son through whom we come to know he, uh, Him Himself, uh, so that we may rightly listen to Him, worship Him, find our identity in Him as the children of God, and then give Him the glory that He alone is due. Amen.